From the ACLU, I'm Molly Kaplan, the director of multimedia for the ACLU and your host for this episode. Journalists covering protests against police brutality across the country are facing an influx of violence, suppression efforts, and arrests by police. According to the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker, there have been over 300 claims of violations to press freedoms since the protests began. These violations include being assaulted with pepper spray and rubber bullets, dealing with damaged equipment, and even facing arrest. Joining us today on the podcast is Jared Goyette, a freelance reporter who was covering a local Minneapolis protest when he was hit in the eye with a police projectile. He is now the named plaintiff in a lawsuit the ACLU of Minnesota filed last week against the city of Minneapolis, seeking justice for the violence he and other journalists experienced covering the protests. Jared, thank you so much for being here. I wanted to start by saying, you know, acknowledging the time. This is an incredibly tenuous and raw time in this country. And you've been front and center bearing witness to a lot over the last weeks. How are you doing is is probably the first question we should be asking. I'm doing okay. Um, uh, it's it, it's healing nicely. The uh, eyes heal quickly. My nose is still a little bit uh, sore. Uh, I got to keep on remembering to put in the eye drops. Uh, there's a feeling of uh, just being in a historic and important moment and wanting to do as good a job as possible to document it. Uh, and uh, and there's just so much happening at once. As journalists, we're doing the best we can. And as we mentioned in the introduction, you're a freelance journalist and on this particular assignment, can you tell us what you were covering? Sure. I was on assignment with the Washington Post. I was working both with their investigative team and with their national desk. In the hours leading up to this, I was helping to gather CCTV footage of the incident itself, of the moments leading up to George Floyd's death. And that was important to establish you know, the, the, the narrative as to what happened to him and what were his interactions with police were like before the viral video started recording. But there was a moment when um, I was waiting for a source to get back to me. Uh, we were still looking for more video. And I heard a helicopter hovering over what seemed to me to be the third precinct area. Because the area where George Floyd was killed and the third precinct are not that far apart. It's the precinct closest to where he was killed and where those officers were were based. So at that point, since I knew I was going to be working with the National Desk later in the evening, I said, well, let me see what's happening there. Because the the previous night there had been tear gas, and so I I drove there, and really immediately after I got out, I sort of realized that this was a a situation that I had not previously seen, like of a type that I had not previously experienced. There were uh, a crowd of protesters around the third precinct. There were officers in front of it, and there were also were officers on the roof. Um, there were protesters who were, would throw things in the direction of police, and the officers on the roof were essentially continuously firing flashbangs or concussion grenades, which were making loud noises, and different other kinds of rounds, uh, rubber bullets, tracer rounds, etc. And did the police know you were a journalist? They had every reason to, to know that. Press! 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 I'm authorized to be here. I'm authorized to be here. I am here legally. But as I was trying to gasp, like, how this was happening and why, I saw a young man on the ground who seemed seriously injured. He was bleeding from the head. People were rushing to help him. And I just started to document his condition and the efforts 
of people to make sure that he was safe. As they started to treat him, a group decided that it was best to bring him to a safer location. They carried him back away from the precinct building, and there was people bandaging him and trying to make sure he's okay, and those other people were frantically calling 911. They couldn't get an ambulance there, and eventually someone brought a car. I loaded him, uh, the young man, the young black man, into the car, and it drove away. I had told my daughter that I was just going to go out and get the video and come back, and she's 10. She was starting to message me because she was worried. She knew enough to know <laughs> to be worried. And I you know, stepped off to the side just to send her a quick message that I was going to be coming home. I was okay. And the next thing I knew, I was on the ground. There wasn't a moment of getting hit and falling. It was just standing and then bam, like you're on the ground. There's a searing pain in your eye. You don't understand what's happening or I didn't understand what was happening. And I would just remember sort of turning in a circle on the ground in pain. I heard people yell and rush towards me. Someone was trying to bandage me and they were just checking me to make sure that I was okay. I, at that moment, it was just shock and like terror of trying to figure out like what happened. Uh, okay, it seems like I can move. And someone uh, helped me up. Uh, and just then a cloud of tear gas like covered everyone. People scatter. And I was trying to stumble away with feeling woozy, one eye completely swollen shut, and the other guy uh, starting to tear gas while, uh, while coughing. So in the middle of this, you had very little help because everyone had to scatter because they couldn't breathe or see. So what happened next? There's a small road there. Um, and I honestly, I was just walking in a direction without really understanding where I was walking to. But I like heard a motor, like a zoom of like a motorcycle passing me and someone being like, sorry, I was worried that like, is there more traffic? I don't know. But I just kept on going. But like, at that moment, uh, an older woman just came up and and really like just bear hugged me and sort of put me down by a wall of an adjacent building where I could just sort of sit. And she um, you know, sat with me there for a minute to make sure I was okay. When were you able to tell your daughter what had happened or get back to her? Well, I would say like, as I started to regain vision in the tear gas, I, I, I sent her a message saying that, you know, I would, I had been hurt, but I was okay. And of course that just made her worry more. I, I maybe wouldn't, I've put it that way, uh, but I was just really dazed uh, and and shook up at the time. And uh, I put a message out. Some friends were offering to try to come and get me, but not long after that, my phone died, and I was just worrying about my daughter worrying. Like I just kept on thinking about like how terrifying that would be for her, and that thought is what propelled me to sort of like pick myself up and. Uh, and to walk until I could find a car uh, and get home because I didn't want to leave her in that condition of uncertainty for any longer than I had to. And are you okay now? Do you have any residual pain or or effects? You know, I've, I've been applying eye drops continuously. The, the main thing and an important thing was to get the pressure to go down, and this worked really well for that. The, it, it, it's been sore over the past week. There was swelling you know, in in front, inside and behind. and But that started to go down. Still a little bit light sensitive. If anything, the eye is healing quickly, but now my, my nose area is uh, is still sore. And I'm just, 
I'm grateful to the bridge of my nose for helping to serve its evolutionary purpose and uh, taking a little bit of that force away before it went here. You've been a journalist for a long time. How does this experience compare to other experiences that you've had covering these kinds of events? Well, there's always been a degree of tension between police, protesters, and media. They, they are tense environments, and you know, there's been incidents and complaints within that. But based on my experience in these types of events, this was markedly different than anything I'd seen before. It was different by the degree of the lack of clear communication, and it was different in the degree to which the projectiles coming from police seemed continuous and to some degree arbitrary, or at least hard for me to decipher what or why they were doing what they were doing. Now, there's like a larger question of the role of the press generally and how important it is to be able to bear witness without fear of harassment or assault. Can you talk about how important that is and sort of the value and the role of a free press in the country and how important it is for public trust and, and accountability of our government? You know, I, I think I rather than tackle those larger questions, I want to speak to it in a more immediate and sort of visceral sense, mm. which is I was there in that moment because there was a young man whose life seemed in danger, a young black man. And, you know, since then, uh, I've gotten in touch. He's 19 years old. Uh, he had just graduated high school in Minneapolis. He was born in Somalia. He's being evaluated for possible long-term brain damage. And I think that it's important that journalists be there to document what happens in cases like this, because you know, if he was hurt and if there was any unjust nature in how he was hurt, uh, that story needs to be told. Uh, and if there needs to be accountability, there should be accountability. But there's a need for us there to help document and verify incidents like this so that everyone knows that we are watching and that what's happening now will be recorded for future use. I think that's important for the safety of people like that young man whose name is Ali. And I was doing my job and that's a job I will continue to do. Did the experience change anything about the way that you would choose assignments in the future or the way that you would cover them? It changed the, it made clear that whereas previously in Minneapolis, you know, you didn't need to show up with a flak jacket and uh, a helmet and goggles. Now you do. And that it changed that day. People may wonder like, why weren't all the journalists like wearing more protective gear? And well, the truth is, is that we'd been doing this for years and didn't have to be under that kind of threat. I think that's certainly not going to change the type of assignments I take. It's not going to change my basic prerogative, which is to stand off to the side, but within view of what's happening. I'm still going to do that. I'm just going to be wearing more gear when I do it. Now, you're fighting back. You're the named plaintiff in the class action lawsuit that they sell you of Minneapolis filed against Minnesota law enforcement and affiliated government officials. What made you decide to join the lawsuit? I think a principal thing is that it seemed clear to me based on the pattern of what happened that day and the pattern of instances further with journalists and police, including some I experienced myself in the days that followed, that something had changed, that there was a strategic shift in the tactics that they were taking. There was an apology, but there wasn't any explanation. And there wasn't any sense of accountability for who made these decisions and why. And I'm hoping that the lawsuit can help us understand more about exactly what happened and ultimately lead to accountability as it's designed to do. 
both stop this from happening, help us understand why it did, and hold people accountable for decisions that they made. And you're a freelancer. Does that change anything or factor in to your role here? It made it a lot easier for me to step forward first. Other people had to go back to their companies and deal with a lot of back and forth there. I think that there's nervousness on the part of, let's say, a large journalist institutions. If they are suing the police, can they continue to cover the police? Can the reporters continue to cover the police? And while I was like contracted in the moment, uh, the fact that I'm a freelancer gave me a lot more latitude as an individual. I, my understanding is other plaintiffs have joined, and I hope that others join. I kind of saw myself as an initial placeholder, hold down the ground and, and wait for others to come. And what does justice look like to you in the outcome of this lawsuit? I see this lawsuit as part of a larger process towards justice. There can't be justice for me and not for Ali. And frankly, there can't be justice for me and not for George Floyd. There's a lot of questions that need to be answered, a lot of incidences that need to be looked into. But I see what I'm doing as a way to chip away at that block and do it in a way that can provide us with more information that may ultimately help us get a bigger picture of what has been going wrong and why then that also may be useful in these other pursuits of justice that are separate but related to what I'm doing. Can you say more about how they're interconnected, what that connective tissue looks like? In some ways, it's very practical. You know, the tactical decisions made by police that were affecting journalists also affected other people on the ground. You know, there were two other people hit by rubber bullets in the head before I was. And I presume it was for similar reasons. If what I'm doing leads to a better understanding of how and why that happened, that may prove useful to those other people who were injured more seriously than I was. Is there anything that you witnessed that can sort of speak to uh, the community or unity? I, I think I'll always remember the woman who helped me to safety. Yeah, at that moment, I was extremely like shook up. I could hardly see. I just, a motorcycle just barely missed me. I didn't know where I was going exactly. And in that moment, like what she said was like, I love you, my brother. And it just felt like a moment of of grace in what was otherwise a very uh, painful experience. And yeah, I, 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 I want to reach out to her too. And Do you know who she was? Yeah. Was she a protester? I, you know, I have her, I have her contact information. I've been uh, her name was uh, uh, Daphne Brown, uh, and I uh, I don't know if she was a protester at that moment. She was just she was an older woman who was trying to make sure that I was okay. You know, at the same time, like when I got hurt, other people rushed to help me at uh, at that scene. And I think while there, this is a moment of conflict, look around, and there are mutual aid donations happening all over the city in a way that no one has ever seen. When I talk about mutual aid, I mean like people directly delivering like canned goods and foods to people who say need them. And there's a coming together here that is inspiring and I think historic. And it's an important part of the way that these events have transformed the city. I want to start to wrap up, but I want to also get back to you had mentioned your daughter was really scared the night that this all happened, was texting you to come home immediately as a 10-year-old. I'm sort of curious how you've completed the story with her, how you've recounted what's happened since in the lawsuit and what you hope 
for her because she's also sort of bearing witness in a moment that is is really hard for I think many people. My daughter's ten, and and I I didn't let her see the the, the George Floyd video, but I think it's telling that as I started to tell her what had happened, she immediately started comparing and contrasting with what happened to Justine Damon and what what happened to Philando Castile. I think that you know she's at this age where you know you're taught the role of police and, and community in a positive sense, but she's, she's also getting this other current of information and she's trying to reconcile that in her mind. And I think she's doing a good job of it in terms of understanding that not everyone in the police is a bad person. And some people try to do good in specific circumstances, but there's also something wrong. And I would say that she's, she's a little bit angry about what happened, but I think that these will be things that she will remember. And, um, they're building blocks in terms of how she and I think a lot of kids her age will have been shaped by this in ways that we don't entirely understand yet. Yeah, I think that's true. Is there anything else that we missed that you would like to add? I mean, I hope I made clear that while I think that the rights of journalists are important, that part of the reason that I felt comfortable signing on to this was that I knew that the ACLU was also pursuing cases of excessive force against demonstrators. Uh, yes, our job is important, but we were not the only, journalists were not the only victims. Mm-hmm. And justice, if we're going to pursue it for journalists, we have to pursue it for, for others as well. And I think in some ways I'm, I'm helping to do a small part of that, but there's a, there's a larger movement here. And most of the victims are um, black, brown, and indigenous people. Uh, and we should keep that in mind. Thank you so much. I mean, thank you so much for being here, for joining the lawsuit, and for also seeing this uh, f- from a holistic perspective. I think you are right that it's sort of, um, we have to address this from many different angles to get to the the place of justice. So thank you so much for being here. All right. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. And if you'd like to support our efforts to protect free speech, both a free press and our right to protest, visit www.aclu.org liberty. Until next week, stay strong.